the cannabis industry is evolving at a radical pace, progressing toward the green peak. Each week, join Richard Zwicky, a cannabis visionary and entrepreneur, as he interviews experts from around the globe to discuss updates and evolutions in the world of cannabis. Let's make that climb together up the, the green, green peak. peak with your host, Richard Zwicky. Hi, everybody. I'm Richard Zwicky with The Green Peak. And joining us today, we have Peter Padden, who is with an associate with Leand Associates out of Oxnard, California, specializing in advising cannabis industry operators around their uh, property, the landlords, investors, operators, all in terms of uh, the best strategy with regards to your property, leasing, buying, or disposing thereof. Welcome aboard, Peter. Thank you very much for having me, Richard. Excited to be here. Yeah, no, great to have you on the show. I know the, um, you know, this is a question that comes up for me a lot with uh, when companies are calling me to consult and ask about uh, different strategies around the cannabis industry is the uh, strategy around their property. And, you know, people don't know, should they buy, should they lease? Uh, What's the best strategy? And so it's never a simple answer. Especially in the cannabis industry, there's no doubt. Yeah. And, you know, one of the first things that comes to mind with it is a, you know, a very traditional business question is, is that the best use of capital? And at what point does it cut over between being a a wise buy and you've got a better use of capital uh, for your business? 100%. um, And and it, it is something that everybody really needs to ask themselves because typically the, you know, the first, the first piece of advice I give anybody is own it if you can. Um, but because of what pricing tends to do in the cannabis spaces, as well as overhead and taxation, sometimes that's that's not the best strategy for people. Usually what I tell them is, is look at your business and decide what kind of scale you need. Um, you know, dispensary businesses are more likely looking to set up lots of locations or rather as many as they can. Maybe leasing is a better idea because you can spread out a pile of capital over more locations and, and use that to generate more revenue. If you're a manufacturing or a cultivation operator, uh, it may make more sense to just own the one, two, three assets that you need uh, so that you're not paying some sort of exorbitant lease rate month over month and increasingly so as you know annual escalations kick in. So it's really take a look at your business and, and what's best for you. Yeah, and you know that cash flow is, you know, early on companies need every dollar they can get. And as soon as they start really selling um, product, presuming it's profitable, they can use it to secure more and more assets. And I think you raised a good point there, which is, you know, a retailer should have a different look and focus than a cultivator. Yeah, 100%. Um, you, I try to draw analogies as often as I can to traditional industry. And, and more often than not, everyone, cannabis is very specialized. It is very unique, but it has a lot of commonalities between things like quick serve restaurant businesses, uh, as well as traditional manufacturing, you know, operations and, and trades, and just look at how those guys would do it. You know, there's no need to sort of rewrite the playbook. Um, you know, just look for as many commonalities as you can and see how the best did it in other spaces. Yeah, and you know, I'm, I mean, I before I built a uh, cannabis producing business, I built a many years ago. I built a retail, a small retail chain that I sold, and you know, I would have never wanted to own a retail operation. Whereas right. the manufacturing production end we own because it you can't move the equipment around. Whereas with retail, you want to have that flexibility that if the customer traffic changes, so can you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, the free cost value in terms for people in terms of the bottom line, when you, you know, having a building is an asset. It's something you can borrow against. 
Um, it's something that is truly an asset, whereas in retail, you've got a, a different calculus. So companies and investors and landlords who are coming to you, um, you know, there's a big business that's uh, developing more and more and coming across in more and more states where people are looking to, you know, who purchased their, uh, their property are now looking to lease it back. What are you seeing? Yeah, absolutely. The, the sale leaseback market has proven to be one of the only reliable and consistent sources of large amounts of capital for people in this industry because of, you know, the situation with lending and what we're all able to do and not able to do because of the use. Um, so I am seeing a considerable amount of that. Um, you know, it's not anything new. It's been going on for a few years. People like innovative industrial properties and some of the bigger REITs have gotten a lot of headlines for doing it. Um, mm-hmm. And it is a it is a fantastic way for a capable operator who who does you know good business planning and takes a good look at their pro formas and makes a decision that it's 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 worth getting that big bundle of cash right now in exchange for the lease. Yep. No. Absolutely. So you know your advice. Um, operators right across the country, I believe. Um, how That's do you right. approach them? How, how, where do you start that conversation? With, the, with regards to the sale leaseback? With regards to their strategy. And obviously, it's going to be a different conversation with the landlord versus the operator versus the investor. Yeah, 100%. So when I got started in the business, it was sort of just, it was out here in California, and it was just before Prop 64 occurred. Uh, mm-hmm. There was already a lot of conversation about it. People were expecting it to go through. They were already tying up assets in jurisdictions that they were pretty sure were going to be among the first movers. For me, it was places like Long Beach, Port Wyneme, California. And of course, everybody was you know, already thinking about Los Angeles just because of the size of the market. Um, and being a, a broker, I had to think about a smart use of my time. And I started working with consultants, people that came on board with high net worth individuals, small-scale operators or people that had never been in this space before that wanted to get in on the green rush, right? Uh And the reason that was a good idea for me was it gave me exposure to a lot of deals. You know, those middlemen, those um, MJ Freeways and 3Cs and Strainwise consultants from, you know, three, four years ago, they were touching a lot of deals. They were seeing a lot of opportunities to for me to work and for me to learn the space because I was new to the cannabis industry like a lot of these guys were in terms of, you know, the X's and O's of actually running a successful business. Um. And for those guys, in a lot of cases, we were seeing very aggressive weed greed on the part mm-hmm. of the landlords. You know, yep. it was it, it was extortionary rates. Uh, you know, triple the asking price for buildings in in green zones. Um, and so there was a lot of madness. And more often than not, you were looking as a broker. I was just looking for the least crazy deal. You know, yes. <laughs> I, when uh, you know when I when I take a look at you know a lease for a for a client, it was mostly leasing back then because the capital constraints were even worse. Uh, you know, there wasn't as much private capital as there is in the market now. Yep. Um, it was mostly leasing. And I would try to tell people, you know, be very, very smart with your with your business plans, with your pro formas, understand the ramp up time, the amount of capital investment you're going to have to put into the facility versus how much, how long it's going to be before you actually get open. Because, you know, the, a lot of this permitting, it was the first time these cities were doing it. As we're all aware, there were a lot of do-overs, a lot of mistakes made, and, and almost nobody got opened right when they expected they would. Um, but after that, once you're operational, I, I always try and, and tell people, stay as low, as far under 15% rent to annual sales as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's just a traditional marker that regular industries have used. You know, if you can get to that golden zone of 7 to 9%, that's fantastic. Yep. Um, and so that's that's sort of where I usually start for people that are looking to lease. Uh, for people that are looking to purchase, 
I actually almost always have people look uh, at a potential sale lease back down the road mm-hmm. and what sort of what sort of lease rate we think we might be able to sustain at the location once it's operational and does our purchase price um, make sense for what we might be able to raise on a sale later. Um, you know, it's it's a, a common real estate investment sort of strategy. You make your money on the buy, not on the sell. Exactly. Well, uh, that's the same anywhere in retail. Right. Exactly. <laughs> As well. Yeah, it's very true. Very true. Um, so we, you know, take a look at the uh, take a look at the asking price. You know, look at what your uh, development costs are going to be to get the facility operational, regardless of you know whether or not it's industrial or a retail asset or an ag asset or something like that. Um, and then sort of go from there. And if those margins, if those numbers make sense, then then go for the purchase. I mean, why not? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we do have to take a break, but we're going to be back in a moment with Peter Patton with Lee and Associates. And I'm Richard Zwicky on The Green Peak. Be right back with you. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. Elevate your every day with that Shuggies feeling, with the sweet taste of Shuggies. Add a cup of Shuggies to your morning coffee. Ah, how sweet it is. Shuggies infuses cannabis and cane sugar to make it the perfect sweetener with benefits. Make your happy hour happier with a dunk of Shuggies in your drink. Order your Shuggies now at s-h-o-o-g-i-e-s dot com or find it in dispensaries throughout California. Whenever you crave a little sweet, pick up Shuggies, the sweet, sweet, take-anywhere treat. Climbing our way up, up, up to the Cannabis Summit of Success, Cannabis Radio is back with more of the Green Peak. And we're back on the Green Peak with Peter Patton. And Peter, just before the break, we were talking about leasebacks as a strategy and, you know, the uh, the outlook and the like. And if you're looking at building an operation in a high growth area or an area that's expected to be high growth, that's a fantastic strategy because you can, you know, you're securing your property and you're taking advantage of the gain over time. If it's an area where you're uncertain or that, uh, you know, growth moves around a lot, that's probably less uh, less enamoring. Um, but it also depends the area of the business you're in. Now, you know, we talked a bit about retailers, you know, need to get to 7 to 9% and max at 15% of their uh, sales going towards rent or leasing costs. Uh, manufacturers are going to be... Know, in a slightly different boat, but not too far off. You mentioned about landlords and the green rush. Are, are you still seeing a lot of landlords successfully able to uh, get much higher rates than they would normally? I am, unfortunately. Um, and every time it happens, it's it's bad motivation for other landlords to try and do it next time. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, um, particularly in California, where things got real nutty for a while there, I am seeing pricing come down. Um, you know, there's been consolidation in the market. That entire conversation around market consolidation is, has gotten into the mainstream as much as, as uh, you know, for landlords as it has for operators. And so there's more awareness around the fact that we need to be smart partners as landlords and create a lease rate, create a lease that is fair to the operator and puts them in a position to succeed. Um, because the value of that lease is only as good as, you know, the strength of the operator, right? Um, so we are seeing it much more so, much more so in the retail world, especially when you're seeing sort of um, capped licensing programs where a city will open and they say they're only going to give two, three licenses. 
Right. Uh, the, the landlords know that a great location with good parking uh, in the right part of town does have inflated value. And unfortunately, there's no sort of marker for what that inflation, you know, should go up to. So it's sort of whatever their imagination, uh, you know, shoots out and whatever, you know, an operator will pay. Uh, so typically what I try and tell people if I'm advising a landlord um, is it, while it might look great, in three, four, five years, you really may be regretting getting that $9 a foot for a retail location when it should have been four. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and I say, you know, be willing to take less money from a credit operator with a very capable brand and a history of success than more money from somebody who's just desperate. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, the the operator themselves also has to be wary. You know, the revenues are crazy early on when the licenses come out and there's few uh, locations, but over time, they're going to come crashing back down and it's going to be like any other retail operation. It's just what it is and very competitive space and limited margins and gains. And you don't have that flexibly for rent. How often do you see, um, speaking of which, how how often do you see percentage rent deals in the space? More and more. Uh, In my opinion, they're actually incredibly fair and they're a fantastic idea Mm -hmm. uh, for for operators and for landlords because what they, they allow for a floor for the landlord. He's guaranteed a certain monthly return, which is more than likely going to be more than if he leased it out to a traditional retail business. Um, but he's protecting, uh, you know, the downside sort of for the for the operator. The operator has a reliable amount they can pay, and if they kill it and they do a great job and they make all the money in the world, well, the landlord gets to go on that ride with them and participate, but at a, a constrained amount. Mm-hmm. Um, so it helps, you know, it helps the landlord in the great times, it helps the tenant in the tough times, and I and I think it's a fantastic deal for both parties. And you're seeing more and more of those across the industry as a whole. Is it the landlords who are coming to the recognition or are retailers starting to push that way? I'm seeing retailers suggest it more often than not. Mm -hmm. Um, Percentage rent in traditional retail was usually reserved for very high-end locations, sort of uh, restaurant sites on Sunset Boulevard type of deal. Um, So you may have a lot of landlords, even uh, institutional ones, experienced guys that don't do a lot of percentage rent deals. Um, so if I'm advocating on behalf of an operator, I'll sort of, you know, extol the virtues of the concept, show them the potential upside, maybe put together a little financial model on what that could look like based on the, the tenant's performance, but also explain how it, it helps keep their tenant healthy. Um, I would say of the last, let's call it six dispensary leases I've put together, four of them have included some sort of percentage rent clause. Interesting, because I've done, I used to do percentage rent deals on any location that I was concerned about where the landlords were approaching me and I wasn't too sure in the long-term viability because that minimized the risk as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a great way for parties to get what they deserve on, on, a, on a deal. So, you know, on that, you know, taking it one step further, the investors who are looking at the space, um, are you seeing more that are looking at buying the property to lease out to operators? Are you looking at the, are you seeing them looking at, you know, buying the properties? Are you, how are you seeing that? Because I know you've, you're spending a lot of time with investors as well. I am. Um, it's sort of, it's a bit of a mixed bag in my experience. I'm seeing the, a lot of call it uh, uneducated investors, guys who are coming into the space for the very first time. Um, most mostly driven by the fact that nationally traditional cap rates for for regular single tenant assets are are just very low right now. It's very hard to get an aggressive return versus what say a cannabis property can can offer you. 
So they're looking and they're poking and they're prodding uh, and they want pre-leased stuff, preferably that's in revenue uh, with experienced operators and a good guarantee. They're looking for the same stuff that any traditional real estate investor is looking for. A lot of the development deals that I was seeing previously have sort of slowed off, uh, at least in my experience and what I've seen, because there's just a few bad stories out there of guys who bought 10 acres out in Cathedral City somewhere uh, built, you know, a hundred thousand square feet worth of stuff. And it's half of it's vacant now, you know, they put a ton of money up uh-huh. front and it, and it just hasn't worked out. Uh, you know, inexperienced operators failed, um, or they didn't, you know, accurately project build out costs. Um, so I'm seeing less of sort of that sort of optimistic or, or value add investor in the space these days. Uh, but I am seeing a lot of tenant and tow deals, experienced operators who have developed cap- relationships with good capital partners that they trust, who they will bring in to, to tie up an asset while they negotiate a lease and buy it on their behalf. So I am still seeing sort of that, that a lot of that type of deal where it's being bought to be leased and they already have an idea who the tenant's going to be. Right. And, you know, having the tenants lined up is fantastic. Um, but you made, you know, an interesting point there about, you know, people having built the and constructed the buildings and things aren't going as well as expected. And, you know, the cannabis industry, people have to realize and recognize it's not different than any other. It's just the material that's being handled is and is still in, you know, green rush, gold rush, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's happening. What other industry, you know, in, in your career have you seen go through something similar with regards to the real estate that you would say, you know, this happened before in this area and this is kind of what we're seeing again. Cause there's always cycles. There, there really are. I mean, it's, and that's exactly, I think it happens every what, eight to 10 years. It's mm-hmm. some asset in some geography, some area gets really, really hot and you have a lot of people building and buying on spec and they just get caught out and it happens at the wrong time. Uh, the tough part about the cannabis industry right now is everyone's sort of speculating on when that turn is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And there's a, you know, there's a lot of environmental factors there. For, for us in California, you could say we've, we've already been going through it a little bit. But once the federal, uh, you know, regulations change, what does that do? You know, does that cause us to explode? Does that cause even more money to rush into California? Or are we now all of a sudden competing with guys building big facilities in, in income tax-free states like Texas, well, not specifically Texas in this case, but Oklahoma, you know, the hemp market, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. who can now sell their product with better margins into the California market. So you have a lot of speculation and a lot of sort of guesswork on, on what that's going to look like over the next two to four years in the cannabis space. But I would say I've I've seen similar fallout or or similar cycles occur in every asset class, mostly in industrial and multifamily uh, development. In my experience, where all of a sudden the demand just wasn't there, and an unfortunate developer got caught in the middle of building a you know a ten twenty million dollar asset or more. Yeah, and I mean that's what happened to developers in Vegas in two thousand eight, right? They were stuck with forty thousand unsold homes. Yep. Right. It was a it was an issue, but. Uh... You know, you we, you mentioned a bit about cycles, the, uh, the cycles and, you know, is it two years or four years? The thing I always caution people about is, you know, there isn't going to be a mad, there will be a mad rush the day legalization gets announced, but it's also a beware moment because it means that the out-of-state operator is going to be able to operate within 
you know, your state. And if you can grow more efficiently, that's where the growing going. If you can do anything more efficiently, that's where the sourcing is. So being a bit of everything isn't always the best situation to be in in that scenario. We do have to take another break, but we'll be back in a moment with uh, Peter Patton of Lee & Associates. I'm Richard Zwicky on The Green Peak. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. Hey, take a look at this. They're selling smart pots. <laughs> they have pot that can make you smart? Where is it? Not that kind of pot. Smart pots are the best aeration container to grow your plants. Check this out. This is the original fabric container for faster producing, healthier plants. They're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields. Plus, smart pots are reusable and sustainable, so you can use them over and over again, no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor. That's very smart, but how good are they for the environment? Smart pots are BPA free and lead free, so you'll always be able to ensure a pure, clean grow, and they're 100% made in the U.S. Over 28 million smart pots have already been sold so it seems like a smart investment. Look for smart pots in close to 2,000 garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric container. Find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com. Climbing our way up, up, up to the Cannabis Summit of Success. Cannabis Radio is back with more of the Green Peak. All right, we're back with uh, Peter Patton of Leand Associates. And Peter, you know, it's really interesting conversation with regards to uh, leasing the strategy, buying leasebacks, all the different ways for people to use their capital, but also to mitigate their risk in the future. Um, people who are looking to set up in the industry or are already operating in the industry and thinking about cash flow and opportunities, either opportunities to use free cash or looking at six months out and saying, we may run into a problem. They're wise to speak to you about, you know, what they can do with their their leasehold, their land, and everything else. How do they get in touch with you? But also, what's the right frame of discussion that you want, you know, people to be thinking about when they come to you? Yeah, hundred um, percent. So, you know, people can reach out to me, and my my email address ppadden at lee-re.com. You do a search for Peter Patton, Lee and Associates. I'm the first thing that pops up in Google. So it's easy to get a hold of me that way. I uh, find all my contact information there. The biggest encouragement I think I would give anybody, either looking to expand an operation, get into it for the first time, uh, or sort of reevaluate their current position, is do it earlier rather than later. Um, in this space, that, that green rush thing gets a little bit too literal sometimes. And people mm-hmm. make decisions. Yeah, people decide to make decisions involving their real estate far too late in the game. Uh, And in a lot of these cases, a lot of these jurisdictions, a lot of these places across California and across the US, people know about changes in the market ahead of you. The locals tend to have conversations with City Hall. They sort of know when policy is going to change. So when you find out about it, it may already be, you know, you're not the first in line. Mm -hmm. Um, the, The sooner you can plan any move, whether it's growing an existing operation, you know, sort of specking out your your expansion plan, say you're a logistics company for the next two years. Well, cannabis takes a long time to get a facility operational. You've got to tie the place up. You've got to close on the property. You've then got to build it out. You've got to go through permitting and not just at the local level, but also at the state. Um, and as a lot of us saw with COVID that, you know, no one saw that coming. It slowed a lot of people up. So um, 
you know, the sooner you can call and just have a conversation, you know, here's, here's where we are, here's what we're thinking about. Have you got any advice for us on this part of town or this part of the country? Or what have you heard about sale leaseback market in Los Angeles these days? Just start the conversation early. Um, they're experienced guys that do what I do. There's not a ton of us that have a mountain of cannabis experience, but you know, we, we've seen a lot. You know, more deals fall out in this space than ever get put together. So for every 10 deals I've done, I probably negotiated 35 of them. Um, yeah. So I, uh, you know, I just, I would say, don't waste time, have the conversation early. Yeah. And, you know, one thing you mentioned there and, you know, with regards to COVID, COVID's having a, I'm, I don't know in your market specifically, but I know in many markets, it's having a dramatic effect on commercial leasing. People are, you know, working from home more than from offices, and that's not going to change overnight. And a lot of people are finding that remote opportunity much more facilitating as a business. That downstream effect, how is it going to affect rents and leases and everything else over the next 12 months, two years? Yeah, great question. I was actually having this conversation with a very, very you know, well-regarded cannabis company in California that did a bunch of beautiful office leasing somewhere in Los Angeles. I won't get too specific. <laughs> uh, and, and now they're looking at, you know, the 20,000 square feet, at least and they go, God, we don't need a third of this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, it depends on the asset class, sort of Main Street USA retail is hurting a lot right now because a lot of those businesses have just not been able to open. Yep. Uh the office market, you're seeing subleases come up left, right, and center. Uh, I, I don't know that this affects the industrial market really at all, um, because right. in those bigger in those bigger facilities that had less staff, you know, they they sort of um, haven't really been as affected by the shutdowns and the regulations, and they can observe protocols much more easily. But it's definitely driving prices down. Um, give you one example: the, the west side of Los Angeles, you've got landlords themselves aggressively approaching prospects and offering deals you just haven't seen before for premium office space in Santa Monica and the west side of LA. They, they just, they want good tenants um, and they're desperate to get people into their buildings. So it's it's absolutely having an, an impact on the office and retail markets. No, I mean, it's, uh, it's dramatic. I mean, I don't know. I don't know who's looking for office space at this point in most places because uh, it's definitely a tough market. So it's going to be a challenge. I was wondering if it's starting to spill into any of the commercial or the retail or industrial. You know, in the cannabis space, I'm not seeing it. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the biggest impact it had for me and my business was a couple of municipalities that were in the middle of their licensing programs had to shut down, um, you know, for four to six weeks while they figured out just their personal staffing situation. Uh, and, you know, because right. it's government, because it's government, they can't do a lot of their work from home. Um, so that, that really affected us the most. And so we had to renegotiate some lease terms and make sure that our, our commencement dates were reflected what was actually going on. Um, but as far as the industrial market, I mean, you know, cannabis, my clients have done pretty well throughout this entire time. Uh, so it's uh, fortunately, fingers crossed, continues to be the case. But I haven't seen too much of an impact on cannabis retail or industrial to this point. Okay, well, that's good. That's good for the operators in the space because, uh, you know, the economic impacts are devastating on so many so if there's areas which are able to succeed and thrive it's good for everybody throughout the economic ecosystem uh peter we have to end the show for today but i want to thank you for joining and to our listeners for listening and uh you know anybody who's looking for more information uh, you can contact peter through ppadden at lee-re.com and i uh, look forward to speaking with everybody again next week thank you peter Thank you, Richard. 
The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.